0: Well, now let's turn away from Conrad Mbego and Philistus to, to God's Word, which is what you came for here, and uh, do turn with me to Romans and chapter 5. When I was asked to uh, come and share here with you, my mind uh, particularly settled on this passage of Scripture and primarily to bring out what I'm calling here the glorious fruits of God's justification. The glorious fruits of God's justification. Anybody who really looks at individuals who are Christians who are walking with the Lord cannot miss the fact that they have a joy that defies their outward circumstances. And it's, it's easy for someone initially to think that that joy is simply because they are having a good time uh, as far as good health and uh, a good and fat bank account and so on. But that would be far from the truth. Ultimately, the joy that God's people have is because of the relationship that they have now entered into with the one who alone matters in the whole of human existence, and that is God himself. And it is out of that relationship, therefore, that they are enabled to defy the circumstances that are around them. And it's that which the Apostle Paul deals with as he enters into chapter five and um, beginning with verse one. This aspect of the joy that is there. For instance, before we read the entire section, I want you to notice this coming out in uh, verse three when he says not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. And then later on, he speaks again about this joy in verse 11. He says there in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God. There's this aspect of joy that's just taken for granted. He's not saying we should rejoice, he is saying we rejoice. It's a matter of fact. Why? Well, I want to suggest to you that it is because of the glorious fruit that comes out of our justification. So allow me to read the first two verses, which simply give the foundation of all that. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope Of the glory of God. Uh, The book of Romans is uh, perhaps the most profound piece of writing, first of all, in the Bible itself, but we can arguably say in all of human literature, primarily because of, of the depth of thought that lies. In this letter. The the apostle uh, begins with that extraordinary statement when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Rome at that time was basically the capital of the known world. It It was the seat of power of those who mattered the most. And and Paul basically was saying he was longing to get there, to, to reap a harvest from the people who lived in the capital of the known world. And the reason why he was convinced he would be able to reap a harvest was because the message he was sharing was indeed the very power of God. On one hand, it was shown to be God's power with respect to the justification that takes place of individuals going from being in a state of complete condemnation to being in a state of reconciliation with God. And that's what he handles from chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 5. And then, beginning with chapter 6, he deals with the other side of this glorious power of God. And it is the way in which he transforms us on the inside. So that having been given this free justification, absolutely free We won't be individuals who will say, well, in that case, I might as well enjoy sin. After all, I won't go to hell. That won't happen because, as it says in chapter 6, we have died with Christ. How can we go on living in it? So he argues all the way to chapter 8. The text that we are looking at is really in that first section. God pardoning us of all our sin through Jesus Christ. And it is that that he refers to in chapter 5, verse 1, as having been justified by faith. In today's language, we say justified by faith only. We want to emphasize this aspect of faith without works, which no doubt the Apostle Paul is speaking about here. Now, I don't know how that translates in your own mind, but back home in Africa, I have to, to, to try and bring out this realization that to justify is not the same thing as to forgive. It's not. To justify is a very positive statement. You're not just talking in terms of, I forgive you. You are saying that someone is righteous in what they have done. Let me try and quickly illustrate that point to you. If I saw two individuals arguing, and one is saying to his friend, the problem with you is that you are always justifying yourself. That person is not saying the problem with you is that you are always forgiving yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the problem with you is that you are always claiming that what you did was right. And that's what it is to justify And it's the very reason why this statement that we are justified ought to blow our minds. Because here is a righteous God, a just judge, who knowing very well that we have sinned against him times without number, makes the declaration that we are righteous. How? Well, as we heard earlier from Colossians, through the substitutionary death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we accept by faith. In the previous two verses, this is what Paul said. Romans chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. Let me begin with verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted, that is this righteousness, to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. In other words, it was all secured when Jesus Christ took on himself the liability of his people, took on himself our sins, and then God poured our just desert, that which we deserve, poured it upon his own son to its very dregs, finished. And Jesus said, it is finished, he died, and it's over. Our sins have been paid for, 100%. How does he then declare us righteous? Quite simple. It is best now. On the righteousness of his son, which he had fully secured by his life. He had lived, or well, first of all, he was born absolutely righteous. He had lived an absolutely righteous life, and it was that righteousness that he set aside when he took on himself the guilt of our sin. So God is able to declare us righteous because when we trust in him, remember, it is by faith. When we trust in him, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is put into our file in heaven, into our account, so that upon that being opened, God is able to declare us righteous completely on the basis of the righteousness of our Savior. So may I say again that that statement is not simply saying having been forgiven by faith. It is saying infinitely more than that. It is saying having been declared righteous by faith, this has happened. If you're a Christian today, this is not what you are waiting to see happen hopefully after you die on the day of judgment. This is history. This is secured. This is now in your pocket. God has declared you righteous in his son. Now, What is the glorious fruit of that? The Apostle Paul begins by saying that the number one fruit of it is this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What it means there is not we have the peace of God, although that's also secured. That's a peace that is experiential. In other words, the peace that surpasses all understanding. When a person becomes a Christian, they do experience that peace. But this is not the peace of God. It is peace with God. It's referring to being reconciled to God. It's what we saw at the very end of this passage when we read verse 11 in, the book of, uh, in this chapter. Remember, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, where Paul began in trying to make people appreciate the the vital difference that the gospel brings, in Romans 1 and verse 18, he began with the words, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men." In other words, that's humanity's greatest problem. It's not the thieves and robbers around us. And trust me, it's not even the politicians. (laughs) It's a God of justice who must punish sin and has already begun in a temporal way to punish sin in this same world. And then we'll finally punish sin in hell, or better still, in the lake of fire. That is humanity's greatest challenge. That this God who is all-powerful is on the wrong side of our lives now. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that the greatest achievement of the cross was to turn that around. That finally, this God whose wrath was hanging over our heads, threatening to sink us deeper than the grave into the very flames of hell, this same God has turned around now and has become our heavenly father. We are reconciled to him. We are at peace with the living God. Instead of us, like Adam and Eve, seeing him in the cool of the evening and running to go and hide, We welcome him. There's no fear, no trembling in our beings. We we want to have fellowship with him. We are reconciled to the living God. And it is a permanent position because it was fully secured in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he's starting from. And I think it's vital for all of us to just realize that, that reconciliation with God was 100% secured when Jesus said it is finished and when God raised him from the dead. It's over. It's over. We can rest in that fact. Now, as if that's not enough, Because that's only the beginning. The Apostle Paul goes on to speak in terms of a translation that has happened, a movement that has taken place, that we have gone from being under his wrath to now being under his grace. And that's the phrase I want us to quickly notice in the second place. So let's look again at this text. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith, that is the same faith, into this grace in which we stand. What does he mean by that? He's referring here to something that reverses what took place in the garden of Eden. You remember that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were kicked out of the garden. And then a cherubim with flaming sword was stopping any access to the tree Of life. It it was barring them from entry into this sphere, into this place where God would deal with them kindly, deal with them graciously. Well, that has now changed for those of us who are truly the children of God we have been translated from being in that outward, outer world in darkness where God's wrath hangs over the peoples. We have been brought into this new sphere that can best be described as the sphere where God's favor And that's the grace that is being spoken about here. Let me try and put it a little differently. Prior to our being justified, declared righteous in God's sight, God's relationship with us was one of wrath, was one of deserving to perish because of our sin. There's been a change. We are now in a sphere where God deals with us, listen to this, despite our sin. He deals with us in favor, deliberately. He, to borrow the phrase in in the famous Romans 8, verse 23. In all things, he works for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't matter what it is. We are now in this context of favor. In John chapter 3 and verse 36, we have the description of the state In which we were before. Let me quickly read this verse to you. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Listen to this. But the wrath of God remains on him. That's where we were. Where hanging over our heads is that huge knife that was to sink us into the grave. But now we have God saying, I've moved you from that sphere. I've now moved you to the sphere where I am determined to bring you to heaven. You are not perfect. There's a lot of cleaning up work, that I need to do in your life. I I have to literally fold my sleeves and put my hands into the sewer, but I'm determined to do it in order to bring you into glory. That's the sphere that is being spoken about here. It is one that is completely undeserved God has determined to do just that. Now, in a sense, it's, it's important for a, a Christian to realize this because those of us who are pastors, often, especially when you're dealing with young Christians, you soon discover that they have this view that, yes, God forgave me and began to deal graciously with me At the point I repented and believed, but because I have sinned again afterwards, I have lost that position. And they are now at a complete loss what to do, because will he accept me back? in in the light of the fact that now I'm not just sinning against his commands, but I'm sinning against the light and the love that he had shown me in giving me his son. And we have to, to remind them that it wasn't just grace at the point of conversion. It's grace all the way to heaven. It's important to realize that. That it's it's a, a movement of sphere that now we are in this position or place of grace. We've obtained access into this grace and notice in which we stand. That's, that's where we are. It's It's the room in which we now dwell, where God is committed to handle us that way. Before I quickly go on to the last bit here, this grace is not just in terms of his determination to to deal with us out of the bounty of his goodness. It is also the Power that is at work within us. That power is also referred to as grace. You remember the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians in chapter 15. This is the way he puts it about his ability to to save God. He puts it this way, chapter 15 and verse 10. Let me begin with verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, listen, but the grace of God that is with me. So this Divine energy that you've seen in my life that's enabled me to drive to traverse land and sea sharing the gospel. This is not innate energy working within me, it's the grace of God that energizes me to do what I need to do. It's also what the Apostle Paul refers to in 2nd Corinthians. You remember when he was speaking about the the hardships he was going through in chapter 12, and as he was praying, Lord, take this away from me, because whatever this thorn in the flesh was was really dragging him down. Jesus says to him, chapter 12 and verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, this is not about me treating you the opposite of what your sins deserve. It's power. Listen to this. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So as we think about this grace of God, it's also the the, the power of the Spirit that keeps us buoyant in the midst of life's trials, this unexplained capacity. Now, any pastor will tell you, I've gone through this quite a number of times, a a Christian has just been told about perhaps a terminal illness and they are in hospital, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to go and tell them, and by now I've learned not to worry about that because often when I get to the bedside, I find that the Lord got there before me. That child of God is telling me about how the Lord has been ministering to him and her in a situation that I'm just glad I'm not in that person's shoes. There is a capacity, there is a strength that God gives by his spirit, his children to handle the trials that are coming. May I suggest to you, as we come to close, that that's what gives birth to that rejoicing that I was talking about. Back to our text. Through him... We've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does he mean by that? Well, when he speaks about in hope of the glory of God, he's referring to in hope of sharing something of that glory at the end of time. That we have this hope In us, that when He appears, we will be like Him. And it's a a hope that is a genuine anticipation. Even as we are going through the trials of life, we are finally face to face with. The last enemy, death, we are able to say to those who are looking at us, don't feel sorry for me. I'm going home. I'm going to glory. Now, friends, the non-Christian can't say that. But let me add the fact that there is exuberance there there is a, a, a peace, there is a joy that defies the grave. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says, and he's not simply saying, and we hope for the glory of God, but we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. This Makes us feel sorry for people who have everything else in this world except God. It's what made King Solomon, in writing the book of Ecclesiastes, say vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Oh, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He, he, at that time, would have been among the richest individuals in, on, on the planet. He, he underwent great projects. But because God had given him the capacity to think to the end of the matter, over and over and over again, he kept saying to himself, what's the point? What's the point? Because soon... I will die, and everything I've lived for, who knows what's going to happen to it. For all I know, one of my foolish sons might inherit this and blow it up. What's the point of all the toil and hardship that I went through? Until he brought God into the picture, and everything began to make sense. That's why he says in the end, fear God and obey his commandments. For that is the whole duty of man. I feel sorry for individuals who don't have this. Who don't have this. But may I end on the opposite and to say this. That brethren, we are truly privileged. We really are. That we are not just justified. Now, that's glorious. That's glorious. To have been declared righteous by God, that's glorious. But more than that is this glorious fruit of coming into this sphere of grace where we know that this God who was against us is now a God who is for us and is turning everything in history for the good of his people, for the good of the church, and ultimately at the doors of death, he's waiting on the other side and saying, well, come home. And all our toil and all our sweat and all our tears and all our sacrifices turned into eternal rewards multiplied a hundredfold and saying to you, this is what Jesus died for. All of grace. Oh, brethren, that that might fill our souls to overflowing, that our joy may be seen by all. Let's pray. Eternal, And gracious God. Oh, how we pray that something of this joy in hope of the glory of God, joy in our suffering, and joy in God might be evident to all. Because of the glorious fruit and fruits of justification, may this radiate from our lives and cause the world around us to ask why we are so different, despite the trials of life, despite failing health, despite death facing us. Oh, Lord, that out of this we might share the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and appeal to others to be reconciled to you through him. Glorify yourself even as we meditate upon these words. For Jesus' sake, amen.